Welcome, welcome, welcome once again on this holy Shabbat. I am Boyce, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant, urging everyone to return to the covenant. If you don't know what that means, you got to keep tuning in to our podcast. And before I get started, as usual, I always want to give praise to our creator, Yahuwah, and his son, Yahusha. Because without them, we would not be here. And without his son shedding his blood for us, we would not have a chance at redemption. If you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live, you can email us at thescienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And if it's during the podcast, we're going to get to your question or comment on air. And if it's after the podcast, we would get try to get it on the next podcast episode. So if you're ready, we are about to... Turn it over to the pastor as we are on the seventh version of the science of the seed. Am I correct? Yes, this is uh, part seven. And we want to continue. Now, this part seven is pretty comprehensive. uh, And it it actually deals with three parts. However, I don't think uh, time would permit in a normal discourse to uh, get with all of the three parts that it deals with, but we'll give an introduction into it. And then, of course, we'll mention the three parts. However, we may only get to but one part of it, but actually part seven has about three portions. So you want to keep that in mind that even though we say it's the seventh part, yet it has three portions that we will be dealing with. And, of course, we want to continue where we left off last week in our discourse, and we encourage each one of you listening uh, that if you didn't get that, you can uh, go, go and review that, and if you have any questions, then let us know. And then you'll see how the sequence kind of parallels with one another as we uh, speak each week. Now, what we have here is the science of the seed, and we want to look at it uh, this time. I think last week we primarily looked at what we call, if there was only one Elohim in heaven, if there was only one Elohim, you know, and what that would have meant. And we want to look logically and methodically at what that would mean if there was only one Elohim in heaven rather than two. But today what we want to do is we want to look at uh, at least two Elohims and what we're going to be concentrating on is the Father and the Son. And so we're going to see how that plays out. So with that in mind, let's get started with our with today's discourse. Eternal Father, we thank you for another week. And by your grace, you have given us life and health and another Shabbat that we can come and worship you and give you the praise. For we realize, oh, Heavenly Father, the greatest thing that we can do at the end of the week is to be able to give your name the praise, the honor, glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your wonderful blessings. For you have brought us through another week, and because you have done that, we want to just give your name praise. For you are worthy of praise. You have given us the Shabbat 
to give you the praise for the great creation that you have given him. Moreover, also for the great salvation that you have provided through your son, Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, as we continue these studies in the seeds, we ask that you would give us comprehending minds that we may be able to understand the things that are being uttered and to see why they are uttered and how they apply to our lives, that we can be the better for you. Bless my host, bless each listener, bless me as I speak, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit may take my words and to be able to decipher them in such a way that when it reaches the hearts of each one of us, that we can be able to not only comprehend it, but to put it in our lives and to be able to live it out, that when Yeshua do come, he can find specimens and find those of us who have allowed the seed to germinate within our hearts that we may represent and be like the son of Elohim. These and other blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, we want to get your Bibles, and we want to look at a few texts uh, as we get started in this particular subject. Okay, the first text we want to look at, we want to go to Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17... We want to look at verse number five, Matthew 17, verse number five. And here's what Matthew 17, five says. Uh, Matthew says here in verse number five of the 17th chapter, he said, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Okay, so here we see in this passage, uh, 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 Matthew is bringing out that a voice had come from heaven, and then when that voice came from heaven, it says, uh, This is my Beloved son, okay, and he says, "Hear ye him." Okay, then when we turn in the book of Mark, another gospel, Mark chapter nine, and we want to use verse number seven. Mark nine seven says, "There was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying." This is my beloved son, hear him. Okay. Now, so when the Bible writer says that Matthew and Mark, they shared a lot of similarities in their thoughts uh, about the Messiah. And you'll see a lot of passages that parallel with these two gospels. Okay, now we want to turn to the book of uh, the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, we want to look at chapter nine. Uh, in the book of Luke, and in the ninth chapter of Luke, we want to look at verse number 35. Now, here in Luke 9, 35 says, And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. So apparently uh, what is going on in these Gospels is the fact that 
so far the synaptic gospels, which means that each one of them are similar, they talk about that cloud that overshadowed them on the tran- on the Mount of Transfiguration, and particularly they were interested in that voice that spoke, and the voice that spoke said that Yeshua on earth was his son and that they should hear him. And then in the Gospel of John, which is a different gospel from the synaptic gospels, he says in John 3.16, the Bible says, for Elohim so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So here in this particular passage, it is pointing out that uh, Elohim loved the world, so he gave, gave his son. So what we are experiencing here is the fact that in all of these passages, it is pointing out uh, to us one very unique thing is that Yeshua was the son of Elohim. Okay, he was the son of Elohim. And as we have looked in some of our studies, we were looking at the fact, when did he become the son? When he got in Mary's womb, or was he the son before that? Okay, now, in this father and son aspect, we want to be able to see how the father actually and literally were father and son from the days of eternity, not just when he got on this earth. One reason why we can put more credence in the aspect of father and son even before this world began is that the Holy Writ speaks in favor of it. It speaks of only one Elohim having only one begotten son. Now, if Yah had a son, wouldn't it be feasible to see that the father existed before the son? So if the son of Yah came into existence, it would have to have been before and his father com- before before he and his father commenced to bring forth this world into existence. So what in other words, what I'm saying is that if he was his son, then he must have been in existence before this world came into existence prior to the creation of our world, Yah's son came forth from him. And when Yah had his son, we can only imagine that it was so far back in eternity that in the eternity past that for us would no doubt be like an eternity. So what we are saying is that it must have been sometimes in back in eternity that the son came forth or he brought forth his son. Now, let us continue to analyze the theory of two Elohims coexisting. For the sake of illustrating a point, let us say that there are two co-equal Elohims who have always existed. And there was never a time in which they weren't. They, too, were always in existence. The question we would ask would, would be, why wouldn't the sacred word specify, specify this? 
So if there was two equal Elohims in heaven, why doesn't a word tell us this? That's the first question we ask. Secondly, if they too were always in existence and they refer to themselves as father and son, then aren't what we are actually saying is that two Elohims can be father without having a child and vice versa. Two of them can be sons without having a father. Now, if this is true, why wouldn't they do why would they do this? Why would they have two Elohims in heaven? One is saying that when he looked down from earth, that this is my son, hear him, and never explain to us how is it that he was not that there was two Elohims in heaven, but yet they are not defining who is the father and who is the son. This is what some say. For what purpose would it be to say that they are father and son rather than just say they are co-equal creators? Now, what sense would it make to have two Elohims referred to as father and son it wouldn't take any more faith to believe simply that there are two Elohims with one, with no one of them being either father or son. As I've said earlier, for the sake of illustration, the point of two co-equal Elohims who have always been in existence, if they are co-equal, then we would have to come up with the answer as to how Logically, could both Elohims come up with a father and son relationship? So if they're in heaven together, two Elohims, and they both claim that they are Elohim, how did one decide that one would be the son and the other the father? So as we pointed out, the son sperm is a seed of the sun or the sun seed. It is a seed containing the son of Yah. What we want to establish at this juxtaposition is that Yah's seed was in himself. Like the seeds were in the plants, animals, and man when he created them. It is this same reproductive principle he himself has contained in his being. Elohim has a seed. Even though Yah was neither created or begotten, his seed was with him in his existence. However, even though the seed of Yah was a part of his being, he had not manifested it until sometimes in eternity past. Even though Yah was, the, even though Yah carried the seed of his son, from the days of eternity, yet he could not declare him as such until he was brought forth from his being. Now, we can only imagine that when Yah brought forth his son from the days of eternity, it was so far back in eternity that to us, it would, it, who, who live in time, it would appear to us that it was an eternity before he came forth from his father's Yah. However, while 
we cannot pinpoint exactly the time which he came forth from his father's being. There is a framework of time that can no doubt give some idea as to when he came into existence after having lain dominant so long in the seed of his father. Now let us examine this framework of time of which we will refer to as the time framework. We'll call this part of our study the chronological framework. Okay. So we want to look at the chronological framework of what's taking place here. What we want to do in this part of our study, dealing with the science of the seed, is to view the seed of Elohim in the light of time. We refer to this aspect as the seed, as the time of the seed, and we'll call it the chronological sperm. Chronos meaning time and sperm, or sperma meaning seed. And these two Greek words together form the term chronosperm, meaning the time of the seed of Yah Elohim, the time of the seed. In these studies, we will consider Yah's seed from three periods of time. We will focus these time periods around creation, which we will refer to as the time before creation, the time during creation and the time after creation, these three time periods is what we refer to as the time structure of which we call the chronological framework. In reference to this framework, we will place within, the, within it the three time periods we, 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 we will call these three periods the pre-creation chronology, the present creation chronology, and the past creation chronology. Now, the first time frame or the time period that we have within a chronological frame is the pre-creation. So we'll try to cover the pre-creation today. And that's probably be all of the time that we have is to cover the pre-creation chronology. Now, the chronology. Now, so as we deal with the chronological framework, in the chronological framework, we are seeking to get some kind of time frame by which we can ascertain as to when Yahsi came forth from his from him and manifested itself as his son. So let us do this by following what we refer to as scriptural understanding as to when the son of Yah manifested himself. When we deal with the chronological framework, we call, we want to consider it from the three periods of time. Again, the three periods are pre-creation time, present creation time, and past creation time. Let us start with pre-creation time, of which we call pre-creation chronology. 
pre-creation chronology. Okay, pre-creation chronology. When we speak in terms of a pre-creation, it is in reference to the time during, it is, it is in reference to the time period prior to creating this world and the universe around it. Any time prior to making of this earth and the heavens is considered pre-creation time. So pre-creation time just simply means all of the time that was before the universe and this earth came into existence. That's what we call pre-creation chronology. In the pre-creation chronology, what we want to establish is that Yeshua, our Messiah, was in existence prior to the creation of our present world. However, Yeshua's father has always been in existence from the time immemorial. The book of Daniel speaks about Yah, the father, as the ancient of days. So let us turn to the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we want to look at chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. I want to look at a, a couple of verses there in Daniel chapter 9. The first verse we want to look at is Daniel chapter 7, and we want to look at, uh, I think I said chapter 9, but I want Daniel chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we want verse 9. Now here the Bible says in the ninth verse of the seventh chapter of Daniel, it said, I beheld till the thrones was cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Now we're concerned with the first part of this where it says that the Ancient of Days did sit. Okay, the Ancient of Days. Okay. Now, just who was this Ancient of Days? Well, let's go further in the same chapter in verse 22. Verse 22 says of the seventh chapter of Daniel, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the throne came and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. In other words, what we're looking at here is twice that Daniel spoke about the Ancient of Days, okay? And he says in verse 22, And the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. So the uh, ascription, Ancient of Days, is an ascription only to the Father. Never do we see an the Holy Writ, that the Son is spoken of as the Ancient of Days. So apparently, this ascription was given only to the Father. He was the only one that was given uh, this particular ascription. So when we look at the Ancient of Days, this ascription was given to make some age difference between him and his son. Then the mentioning of the Ancient of Days 
which strongly suggests that the father antedated his son. Just how long the father antedated his son is not known unless perhaps it is encoded in the scriptures somewhere. However, I don't believe anyone knows the age difference between the father and his son, nor do we know how long Yeshua, his son, has been in existence, nor do we know the longevity of the father, who has always been in existence. However, even though there is a discrepancy or a disparity in their ages, yet between the father and the son, one thing that should be apparent is that a father is older than his son. Since we don't have a knowledge of the time span between the father and his son, we would do well to take the advice in which the Torah teaches. The Torah teaches in Deuteronomy 4.2 and also Deuteronomy 12.32, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish from it. So the Bible said we shouldn't add to the word, nor should we take away from it. So we have to stick within the perimeters of the Bible. Consequently, we need not speculate on either of the age of the father or his son, nor should we try to contemplate how much older is the father over his son. We just do not have this knowledge, nor has it been made known to us. However, from the Holy Writ itself, there are at least two indisputable facts which cannot be contested or debated, and they are the father is older than the son, and both the father and his son antedate their creation. If we have disputable, if we have indisputable facts, we should also have indisputable evidence to back them up. So let us consider the evidence for our facts. The first fact is that the father is older than the son. How do we substantiate this fact? Throughout the Torah and the rest of the Holy Writ, a father in every situation has been established as being older than his son. If you read from Genesis to Malachi and from Matthews to Revelation, every time you have a father, the father has has always been older than the son. Now, the second fact is that both the father and his son antedate the creation. The indisputable evidence for this is found in Genesis. It states that. Let's go to Genesis. All right. In Genesis chapter 1. And also, we want to look at uh, verse number 1. Okay. So we, we know that the father is always older than the son. I mean, it doesn't take a, a lot of intellect to understand that. That's just basic. Now, the second fact that we are dealing with is, is that both the father and the son, they antedate uh, the creation. Now, here's what the Bible says. It said, in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. Okay. Okay, now, if Elohim created the, uh, the heaven and earth, then we have to come to the conclusion 
that before heaven and earth was created, they were there because in order for the creation to come into existence, they had to make it, and they had to be in existence before it was made. So that's that's logical. That's reasonable. We are told in the first book of the Torah that Elohim created the heavens and the earth, which means they could not be in existence, that is, the heaven and earth, until Elohim created them. Moreover, this word for Elohim ends in a masculine plural. Now, when you have a Hebrew word that ends in plural, it doesn't end in S like it is in English. A Hebrew plural word ends in I-M or I-Y-M. Some Bibles have Elohim with the I-M, and the Sefer Bible may have I-Y-M, which is a masculine plural in the Hebrew. And so since Elohim is plural, it means more than one. Now, if Moses had written L, E-L, which would be singular, emphasizing only one individual, then we could say if the Genesis 1-1 would read, in the beginning, L created the heavens and the earth, we can say, well, you know, that was only one Elohim. But it has the plural, I am, which lets us know it's plural. Elohim emphasizing more than one individual. Moreover, we are given further evidence in Genesis 1, and we are looking at verse number 26. Now notice what it says in Genesis 1, 26. The Bible says, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. But what we are concerned about is the first part of it. He said, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image. The us here is indicative of more than one L. This us attributes to more than one. Thus, we have in this, in, in the us, the father and his son. How could you say us and it's only one person? It had to be two. So he said, let us. So when he even got ready to make man, the us is he and his son. Now in Genesis 1.1, it says that Elohim, and when it says Elohim, it's talking about more than one Elohim. But here it is saying, let us, so the us is pointing out more than one. Yeshua's, let's look at Yeshua, Yeshua's name. Let's just look at his name when he was in heaven, okay? Now, let us turn back to the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we want to look at chapter 10. And in Daniel chapter 10, we want to uh, look at a few verses there. In other words, we're saying about the name of Yeshua. What was his name in heaven? Okay. All right. Now, Yeshua's name in heaven, what was it? Let's turn to Daniel 10. And we want to look at verse 13 and 21. Now, in verse 13 of Daniel 10, it says, but the prince of the kingdom 
of Persia withstood me one and 20 days, 21 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief prince, came to help me, and I remained there with the king of Persia. So the Bible says that when there was a contention between uh, the prince and the kingdom of Persia, which withstood him uh, 21 days, it said Michael came to assist. Now, Michael was one of the uh, names for Yeshua when he was in heaven. Okay, that was one of the names. Now, let's stay right here in, 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 in Daniel 10, and we'll look at verse 21. He said, But I will show thee that which is noted in the scriptures of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Now, notice here, Gabriel is explaining to Daniel that if you're going to deal with the prophecies that I'm trying to make known to you, there is no other person in heaven that can make known to you what I'm talking about but Michael. So now you have to draw the conclusion that if his name was Michael in heaven and Gabriel is saying nobody else is in heaven who knows about this prophecy but Michael, what is he saying? It had to be Yeshua because the other person who is the Ancient of Days, you know he knows the prophecy, but but Gabriel is saying, out of all of the angelical hosts that exist, nobody else knows this but Michael. And he was the archangel, not not necessarily he was an angel, but he was over all of the angels, because archangel means the chief of angels. So he's saying, out of all of the angelical hosts, out of the myriads and myriads of angels, the only one that knows what I know is Michael. That had to be Yeshua. Because Gabriel could not be saying that anybody else knew more than Yeshua, who was the son of Elohim. Okay, so when we see that, then when we look in Daniel, the chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, it said, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Now, I want you to know two, two things in, in Daniel chapter 12, 1. Two things I want you to notice. The first thing I want you to notice, it mentions his name, Michael. Michael, okay? And so that's the first thing. He mentioned his name, Michael, all right? And then the second thing that he mentioned, he calls him the great prince, which standeth for the children of people. Now, if he's a prince, you got to say to yourself, how can he be the prince if he was active in creation and creating us, how can he be a prince? He seemed like he would be a king. But what it is saying to us, he is a king. But since he is in heaven and he's a prince, that makes him a son. So as he's a son, he has a father. Who is his father? His father is the ancient of days. So as his father is the ancient of days, that means that his father is a king. But in heaven, Yeshua, who is Michael, he's a prince. The prince is always younger than the father. So the Ancient of Days had a son, and his son is the one who knew these prophecies more so than Gabriel, who is explaining these prophecies. So it is pointing out to us uh, what it is in the relationship between the father and the son. So Yeshua's name in heaven is Michael. His name carries a dual meaning. 
okay? Michael has a dual meaning. It means one who is like El. Now, if you notice that at the end of Michael's name, it didn't say Michael Elohim. It said Mike, Mike, Michael. The E-L at the end of Michael means God, which is one. That's only one. It didn't put Mike, Michael Elohim. It put Mike, Michael. Michael with the L on the E-L on the end means only one Elohim. So that means it's only one person, only one prince, okay? So now, when we look at that, the wise man Solomon alludes to Michael in the book of Proverbs when he says in the following. So let us turn to the book of Proverbs, and in the Proverbs, we want to go to the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 8, and in chapter 8, we want to uh, look at the, uh, start with verse number 22, Proverbs 8, chapter 22. Okay, Proverbs 8, okay, and starting at verse 22. Okay, let's let's read that what the wise man had to say about Michael and about his name. Okay. It said, Yah possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no fountains, a bounding with water before the mountains were settled, before the hills was brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the, de of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundation of the earth, then I was with him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitation rejoicing in the habitable part of this earth. And my delights were with the sons of men. So even though we look at this as the wisdom of Elohim, we can see in this, it's talking about his son who was with him in the creation. And as we look at him who was with him in the creation, it was none other than he himself. So when we look at that, it is actually given us a description of what was going on prior to the creation of this world. Now let us turn also to Proverbs chapter 30. And in Proverbs chapter 30, we look at verse number four, which says, Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended who has gathered the wind in his fist? 
Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? So he's asking these questions. And then he goes on further to say in verse 4, what is his name? And what is his son's name, if you can tell? This is why when you look at the, word, the, the name Michael, it has two meanings. And the meanings that his name has is found in the latter part of verse 30 and verse of chapter 30 and verse 4. It said, what is his name? And so when you look at the name of Michael, what does it mean? It means who is like Elohim, who is like Elohim. And it also means one who is Elohim. So when we look at the name of Elohim, or in the name of Michael, that is, it not only means uh, who is El, is asked the question, who is El? But it also says, who is like El? So one question is saying, who is El? And the other question is saying, who is like El? And the only person that is like El is the seed that came from El, which is the son. He is the only one in the universe that is completely like his father. So in Proverbs 30, verse 4, what is his name and what is his son's name? If you can tell here, we see in these verses, the personification of wisdom. Yah's wisdom is portrayed in his son, Michael, who was with him and during the pre-creation of the, of this universe. He was there. Okay. Let us use a few more texts and wrapping this one up. Let us turn to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Okay, we want to go uh, to Colossians, and in Colossians, we want to go to chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to look at a few verses there. So we are seeing here that there is no co-equal in the sense of them being in existence at the same time. Uh, we're saying there's an age difference. Okay. Okay, now here. In Colossians, we want to start with uh, chapter 1, and we want to start with verse 12. It says, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's what we want to uh, concentrate on. Now, it's in verse 12, it speaks about the Father. In verse uh, 13, it speaks about his Son, okay? It said now in verse 15, it says, who is the image of the invisible Elohim, the firstborn of every creature? So he's saying here that Yeshua the Son is in the image of the invisible Father or invisible Elohim uh, in the firstborn of every creature. 
It said, for by him all things are created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So it's saying that in all of the creation that he has is that the son was right there with him. Before the creation of the world, he was right there with him. And verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and by him all things was consist. So the father said, all things that I have, my son was involved in all of those things. So here Paul speaks concerning Yah's son participating in creation, and to be able to participate in it, he had to be before it. Now let us turn to First Timothy. Let's turn to First Timothy, and in not not First Timothy, we want Second Timothy, chapter one and verse nine. Chapter Timothy one nine says this. The Bible says in verse nine of Second Timothy, chapter one, verse nine, it says, wherein he said. Uh, let me see, Second Timothy. Uh, let me see that. Let me see, Timothy one nine. Uh, let me see. Verse nine says, "Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to the works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Yeshua." the Messiah before the world began. Now notice what it says. Paul is saying here that if we have salvation, it was given us before the world began. In other words, for that was even a creation. Elohim had a word, Elohim had a plan of salvation. And in that plan of salvation, he says that, uh, let's read it again. It says, who has saved us Okay, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. In other words, we are saved by grace. But when was this grace dispensed? He said, which was given to us in the Messiah, Yeshua, before the world began. So before the world again, he knew was going to be saved. And he said, I've already provided this grace even before the world. He didn't wait until man sinned. He said, I provided this grace, and it was through his son. Therefore, if it was through his son, this would mean that it had to be at least two Elohims in heaven in order for this to be done, for him to discuss the plan of salvation with his son, okay? And so his son knew that the salvation would come through him. All right, let us uh, close with 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. And we want to look at chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. We want to look at chapter 2, and we want to consider two verses there, and that verse is uh, 7 and 8. Notice what it says. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, So that contrariwise ye ought rather to forgive him and for and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with over much sorrow. Okay. And then let me see. That's second Corinthians two. Now I have said seven and eight. Before 
which I beseek you beyond to confirm him. Okay, well, that's not the one I wanted. Let me see. Let me check that out again. Okay, let me see. Okay, maybe I, maybe I may have intended for a first Corinthians. Let me see if, let me see. Uh, yeah, I think I, 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 it should have been first uh, Corinthians rather than second. The verses are the same, but the book is different. So we want second Corinthians, that is, and we want verses seven and eight. Okay, here it says, but we speak the wisdom of Elohim in a mystery, even hidden wisdom, which Elohim ordained before the world unto our glory. He said before the world came into existence, the mystery of this hidden wisdom. So what was the mystery of this hidden wisdom before the world? Verse 8 says, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Yahor of glory. So it's saying here, the crucifixion was already set in place before the world. And he said, if the princes of this world, like Herod, Augustus, and the Caesars, and the worldly empires had known this, would they have crucified him? But see, they didn't know about this plan of salvation that Elohim had made for his children before the world was. He said if they had known that, they wouldn't have crucified him. They could not understand this, so they crucified him, not knowing that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Eternal Father, as we looked at the pre-creation and we can see the Father and Son already at work, even before the world was, you were making a plan of salvation. And you would have given us means that if man sinned, he would have a way of coming back to you. And that the son worked with him, sometimes in eternity. And even before his son came into existence, the father existed. And at one point in time, he brought forth his son. And when his son came forth, he and his son worked out both the creation and redemption. In Yeshua's name, we do pray. Amen. And amen. 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 Wow, this was uh, very interesting. Um, now, to go back a little bit on some of the things you stated, you said Genesis 1 1 describes more than one Elohim. Mm-hmm. It's, got, it's got Elohim the plural. See, the singular uh-huh. of Elohim is L, just L, that's all. Okay. So whenever you have the I am, you have more than one. Now, some Bible scholars would tell you. Now, the reason why they got it plural is because Elohim had a lot of plural personalities and a lot of plural attributes like love, joy, and all that. Uh-huh. But but even a singular Elohim has all of that. So you couldn't say that the Elohim is talking about his attributes. It was talking about the, the attributes was not talked about here. Uh-huh. It was talking about his person. He is Elohim because it's more than one. Mm. And so you said that when it just states L, that means mm-hmm. just only one. It's only one. And another time when it's uh, only one is when they say Eloha. Eloha. E-L-O-H. That can also means one, one Elohim. I mean one, one L. One L. But L and Eloha means one, but Elohim is plural. It's mean more than one. 
Um, now, uh, you said that Michael mm-hmm. is the name of Yahusha, the son. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. He's the prince. Yeah, he's the prince. Um, and you See, said, uh-huh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was saying his very name, uh, Mike, Mikey L, mm-hmm. means one who is like L. One who is like L. Mm-hmm. And one or who is Or it could mean L. one who, one, and it, it also asks the question, who is like L? Who is like L? So it's, mm-hmm. he said it is, um, who is Elohim mm-hmm. and who is like L? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like when you read in the book of, uh, I think it's uh, Isaiah 14, 14, when Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High, uh-huh. lets us know that he was trying to take over the position of Yeshua because Yeshua's name means one who is like the Most High, mm. and he was the only one that is like the Most High. So if he said, I want to be like the Most High, uh-huh. he is saying, I want to take the position of, of, of Yeshua in heaven. That's what he was trying to do. Now, also, um, when when you talk about how long have uh, the father and son existed, doesn't the scriptures talk about the son also having white woolly hair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book of Revelation, right. Mm-hmm. So that too, it, it sounds like there too have long existed before any and everything else. Yeah, th- those two. But see, when you read it in the book of Revelation, uh yeah, he does describe him with the uh, the hair, uh-huh. but uh, never does it speak of Yeshua, he himself, as being uh, the Ancient of Days. Uh-huh. You know, uh, certainly he existed, you know, far longer, far longer than any other being. But uh, he's not spoken of as the Ancient of Days because his father out outdates okay. him. So the only one that's told, spoke of ancient of days is the father. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the only one in, in the scriptures that Daniel points out. Okay. Uh, we have a question that's come mm-hmm. in. And it reads, Isaiah 41 verse 4 says, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahuwah, the first and with the last I am he my question is does with the last refer to Yahusha the son and that was Isaiah 41 what? Uh, verse 4 uh, well, let's see verse 4 oh, this ain't coming. okay um, now repeat your question again okay all right. it says Isaiah 41 verse 4 says who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahuwah, the first and with the last, I am he. My question is, does with the last refer to Yahusha, the son? I, I, I would think so. Um, now, what you're asking is, uh, can be parallel with some other text. Okay, so when you read here where he said, I'm the first and with the last, I am he. Okay, now, uh, one of the things I would look at in conjunction with that uh, particular text in uh, Isaiah is you turn to the book of Revelation, okay, and 
in the book of Revelation chapter 1, and you read verse 8, it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith uh, Yehoah, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Okay, now, what we're looking at, it's got similar language uh, that it speaks about, uh, I am Alpha and Omega, and then he says, the beginning and the ending. And this phrase, this phrase uh, here is talking about Yeshua. And you'll find a number of th this same phrase in, in the book of Revelation where, where, where he is pointing out that he is the first and the last, or he is the uh, the uh, Alpha and the Omega. So when I look at that text in Isaiah, due to the fact that in the creation that Elohim used his son to make the creation, I would strongly think that in the book of Isaiah, it's also talking about the son until I can see it differently. Okay, we have another question. It says, potential future chrono chronolo chronology of the seed, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 through 28. Could these verses show a future chronology of the seed, or would they fit into the present chronology of the seed? Oh, you said 1 Corinthians 15? Yes. Okay, give me them verses again. Verses 27 and 28. Okay, let's look at that. 27, 28. Uh, uh, okay, now run your question about uh, what's being asked about these verses. Said, could these verses show a future chronology of the seed, or would they fit into the present chronology of the seed okay uh okay let let's look at it this way let's look at this way okay and we said this is 27 28 yes okay let, let's look at it and put it in a time frame it said for he hath put all things under his feet but when he saith all things are put under him it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him, and when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that Elohim may be all in all. Okay, now, the framework that this would go in would certainly not be the pre-creation chronology, this would borderline on the present uh, creation. Now, when we talk about the present, we'll be dealing with that next week. We didn't really get into it today. We just got into pre-creation. But when we get into the present creation, we, what we're going to find is the present creation is from the time that Elohim made this world up until Yeshua destroys this world. Okay. Now, so when he put the enemies under his feet, uh, that's going to be basically within 
the present creation, not the pre-creation, and not the uh, and not our and not the new creation when he makes the new creation, because that's going to start a, the third time period. So if you're going to say it's putting him under his feet, okay, well, when he does this, then uh, I believe that the wicked and all of the people who are going to be lost uh, and all the things going to be put under his feet is going to be before he makes the new heavens and the new earth. So I would, I would put that within the present creation of what we are living in now in this particular age, but it may have results that we are, that we'll be in another, another, uh, uh, period of time. But currently, if he's talking about putting something under his feet, that would have to be now. So if we look at, look at that now, then, then what we're looking at is the fact that, that would be doing the creation of this world, not the pre and not the one afterwards. All right, and uh, I have I have a question myself before we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit associated with it, but who breathed into man? Was it the father, or the son, or was it both of them? Uh, well, let me see. When he said, let us make, let me see, hold on, let's see. Maybe the scriptures might give an indication, okay? Okay. All right, now, according to the Bible, he said, Elo, Yah Elohim. Okay. You know, formed man, so it might have been, it might have been both of them, or what I would, what I, I would uh, say, Yah Elohim, okay? Mm-hmm. Let me see. And then as you read the text, it keeps saying, Yah, Elohim. It may have been just one breathing in, in them, but they were both cooperating in the making of man. Mm-hmm. But when it says Yahweh, Yahweh, or Yah, we know that's one. But then when it says Yah, Elohim, we know that's more than one. Mm-hmm. So I would think that either one uh, breathe into him, and that could possibly have been Yeshua and the Father who spoke through Yeshua and the Son did the act. Because what we see in the creation in the beginning, it said the spirit of Elohim moved. Okay, so if the mm-hmm. spirit of Elohim moved, then again, what we are seeing is a combination of the Father and the Son, again, even in the creation, that that spirit came down and moved upon the waters. Okay. So, uh, let me see. Uh, spirit, uh, okay. It possibly could be both, both, both of them, you know, because both of them are, are, are L, both of them are L's, uh-huh. but, uh, when they use Elohim, I can only think that both of them participated even in the making of man, which would largely be his breathing as well. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I just was curious about that. Would, uh, would it have been both of them since they both created man, or was it just one? But uh, I guess in essence, too, one comes from the other. So if it was even the son just to breathe in, he come, he's part of the father still almost in essence, both of them breathing into man. Mm-hmm. Also. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's just one spirit, you know. Father and Son, they share the same spirit. And then when man was created, he shared the same spirit as well. Wow. So so even if the Son did it, you know, it all came from the Father. Yeah. All right, with that, we will transition to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. In this segment of Let's Talk About It, I kind of want to talk about churches getting smaller. Uh, it seems like in the past few years, churches and congregations have gotten smaller, and there's been news lately that T.D. Jake's church has gotten smaller, and I believe even Creflo Dollar, I think that's why he had came out and, you know, said there's no need to tithe and whatnot. You know, and so there's a lot of things seems like going on with this church, with these churches. So I'm wondering, maybe is it people waking up to understand uh, that some of these guys are nothing but false prophets? So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Matthew 7, that is Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 20, I want to read. And it reads, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but every corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and is cast into fi- into the fire. Wherefore, by the fruits ye shall know them. So, Pastor, I just wanted to discuss, is it possible that the reason why a lot of these religions and churches are losing uh, people coming to church, are some of them possibly waking up and seeing these guys or who they truly are, false prophets? Well, it uh, it has some prophetical implications, but there are a number of other uh, aspects that we can look at it. Uh, we can look at, like some people say, it may be a shaking going on. Uh, mm-hmm. Elohim is shaking out of these churches, mm-hmm. uh, as we discussed last week about come out of her, my people, mm-hmm. that some people may be coming aware of the shaking, and they are being shaken out of some of these, uh, up under some of these false uh shepherds or false pharaohs who are holding people in bondage like they were in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And Moses had to go by and tell those false pharaohs to let his people go so they can worship him according to the word. And and what we find in today is that a lot of the Hebraic people who are coming up, mm-hmm. they are giving some of the mega churches a challenge by the doctrines that they are preaching. Mm. Because when you look at the, the Hebrews, a lot of them are getting larger and some of the mega churches are getting smaller. Yeah. And so one of the factors that you're looking at is that some of the people are saying, Hey, you know, the, they are pointing us to stuff in the Bible and a lot of stuff that y'all have been teaching for years are not even in the Bible. Mm. And so a lot of the shaking can come because of that. Mm-hmm. But there's another, that can also be a, 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 another scenario too, is that, when the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 came out, mm-hmm. uh, they were asking many of the church preachers, uh, you know, what's going on? And many of them could not point them to a thus said, you know, the Holy Writ. Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. their own leaders were standing in shock in many churches, not just uh, the mega churches, but 
even some of the smaller churches, they were up against the fact, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. And so they made it so that the church didn't give their congregation a word from Elohim. They just followed the government. Now, there mm-hmm. were churches out there, and I know there were some of the uh, Hebrews out there. Mm-hmm. They did not close their churches. They went on with their worship. Mm-hmm. But many of the other churches, they began to close. And when they began to close, and some of these mega churches was about a part of it, I think they reduced their congregation too. And they had to do the six feet distances, wear the mask, and do yeah. uh, all of this. And many of the uh, churches was telling their people to take the vaccine and all of this. Yeah. And so what happened when they did that, uh, there was no word from Elohim as to whether this was true or not. Mm-hmm. But the Hebrews, they were teaching that, from the word that this was not of, of Elohim and it was something that was different from what Elohim had prophesied in his word. So therefore it was not that much credence in it. So what's happening is, is that when the people recognized that the word was coming from the government and from, not from the Bible, a lot of them believe that the government was right and they not to come in contact with other people who might have had the virus, they stayed home. And I think so many people stayed home that we will now, when they open the doors of the church, many people still do not come to church. They got so used to looking at uh, the church on media that they would not come. Matter of fact, they say even during this time that the virus is supposed to have been out, that many home-based businesses began to develop. More people now, they don't even go on many jobs. They have created their own business over the Internet, and they are doing business from their own home, making a decent living without working on another job. So not only do we see the churches being declined, but we see many in places of employment that hesitated to, to hire people uh, back in the day before the virus, after the after the virus, they are crying. They are they are doing everything they can to get people to work for them because they don't have any workers. Before the virus, they had many workers, but after the virus, many people don't start their home based business. They said, "We don't need you any anymore," and they are crying to try to get people to work for them. And the churches in many instances, uh, looking at a re- reduction of their congregation because they didn't have a word to tell to the people mm-hmm. and nor uh, do they have uh, uh, the resources to give to the people because of the fact uh, many of the people could not even work. Their jobs was downsized. So if you go into the mega church and you ain't got no money, you, 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 wanna, you don't want to be embarrassed. So what do you do? You stay home. So I think it was a multitude of factors, not only them not preaching the word, but also uh, people losing their jobs. And also when you deal with the media, people got used to staying home looking at the church. They didn't need to spend their gas money. They could still get the service online. So there was a number of factors that caused these churches to go down. But, you know, I I, I don't think, too, uh, even though a lot of these services, they live stream, um, especially like if you look at YouTube and you look at their audience during the live stream, the audience, even live streaming is not that large. Mm. And I, I just wonder, you know, how, how, when the whole coronavirus came thing came through, 
how you can profess faith in a Yah who is over everything and bigger than everything, but yet still you advocate for closing down your church, wearing the mask, uh, uh, getting the shot and everything. Like, okay, so where is your faith in the most high then? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are taking our introspective look at really what's going on. Do you trust in government or do you trust in him? Yeah. I mean, we'll sit out, we'll sit around here and quote Psalms 91 until our tongue fall out. Uh-huh. But yet still, when you get to quoting Psalms 91, that he will protect you and put his edge around you. Uh-huh. But yet still, even in many of the publications of Christian publications, they got people wearing the mask in there. And they are quoting Psalms 91, but at the same time, they look like they got the trust in the mass. Yeah. They look like they got the trust in the, whatever the government say. And then, you know, the, there are even churches that uh, do not even believe what the government say, and they're not teaching all that they should. But some of these churches that are not teaching all that they should, they, they took a stand on many of the things that, we who say we have truth do not take a stand on. Mm. And they are churches that teach about health. Mm-hmm. But in teaching about health, they didn't show how abiding by the health principles could help us. They just went along with the government. And then yeah. you take churches that don't even know anything about health. They are saying if you eat a good meal and get the right vitamins, you don't have to worry about the virus. Yeah. But as you see, the word is not coming from Elohim. The word is coming from the government. And they put more trust in the government than they do in the word of Elohim. So what do they do? They tell us congregation stay home, wear the mask, and do things like that. And now they are getting the repercussions of that is that their congregations are going down, down, down. And I wonder, too, are we in an age of where people are starting to study a lot a bit more in the scriptures and look for answers for themselves? At all, mm, I, I, you know, I don't have no statistics on that. But what I would say, in the uh, in, in the light of your question, is I think uh, I think a lot of people uh, have been studying all along, uh-huh. but they, they they may be studying out of a mindset of what the denomination teaches and not the Bible. Uh, okay, because if you Look at what people say and validate what they believe. A lot of times they say, my pastor said it, not what the scripture says. And when you ask them for a biblical base, they say, well, you have to talk to my pastor, which means they are searching, but they only understanding has come to the limit of what they pastor say about scripture, rather than what scriptures is saying about itself. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of that, I, I, I think there's a search out there, and I think what's happening today is that when you got so many voices who are saying stuff, and then you go to the scriptures and find out it's true, I think a lot of people are being challenged today to say, well, now, if this is what you believe, where is it in the Bible? Uh-huh. And I think it's forcing people to say, well, let me look at it, and if I can't find it, let me go to my leaders and let my leaders, and if my leaders can't really give a validation for it, then maybe it may be time for me to leave that church because they do not have answers to a thus said the Lord, which they should. They are getting paid for it. So that may be one of the factors as well. Not that people haven't been studying, but it's just that they study out of a denominational standpoint. Because most people, if you are Baptist, 
like some people say, I'm a Baptist. I was born a Baptist. I'm going to continue to be a Baptist. And when I die, I'm a Baptist, which says that, yes, I'm studying, but with the Baptist, and I'm not going to move from what the Baptists teach about the Bible. Yeah. But if people can get into the mindset, let's put the denomination away. Let's put the church away. Let's get into the word, what the covenant says. Let's see what the Bible says. Then I think people like that would more likely arrive at the truth uh-huh. rather than saying, I was born this way. I'm going to continue this way and I'm going to die this way. In other words, they are saying that I'm going to be so faithful, even if it's error, I'm going to be so faithful to my church that nobody's going to change me, even though it's error. Yeah. And when you reach that, I think, you know, you're going to stay. But I think to the people who say, hey, wait a minute, I may have been born this way, but I'm discovering new truth. And because I have this truth, I'm going to be able to follow that rather than something I've been brought up in. It, and, you know, I, th- I think another factor is too like uh, my generation, uh, I think kind of started, they was in and out of the church. And then when they had kids, I think a lot of our generation really didn't bring their kids up in a lot of these religions and churches as much as the generation before me. And I think that has an effect because two, uh, the older generation that was primarily a lot brought up in, in the church, if they got the vaccine, and I think a lot of them are dying off, which would lead to less people. And I think with the younger generation, they are a lot quicker to challenge a lot of things that are said in the pulpit than I think previous generations are. You know, you know yeah, that, that, that have a lot of credence too. Uh, uh, that too. But I think uh, the younger generation and the older generation, I think one of the things with the uh, younger generation coming up now is that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them are unchurched, even though they've yeah. been brought up in the church. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them are still church. Now, don't get me, get, get me wrong that you got a lot of young people still in the church, but I think one of the factors is that they were coming as spectators rather than in, being integrated into mm. the program of the church. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, it is true that you have the young people, you know, they have a way of worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them wear gym shoes and they uh, play the drums and stuff like that, which give them the integral part of the worship. And then you're saying mostly what I see uh, in the church of the young people is not so much a choir, but they now have what they call a praise team. Yeah. And so the praise teams uh, give the young people uh, entrance into the worship, even if they got an older pastor, but yet and still, they may still have significant parts within the church. It would be good that even even today, as we develop churches, that we would get young people who are educated in certain fields and say to them, we want you in this church to develop a ministry that we can have an outlet to the people. Let you develop it, Mm. not us, Uh because this is your generation. And I think because churches have not made the young people an integral part of the worship, then a lot of them say, well, hey, it has nothing for me, so I'm not going to be there. But when they find meaning in the worship, then they can find more of a wholesome outlet to be there and to be evangelistic through the services that they themselves have developed. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I remember, uh, I'm not going to name the church or the school, but I remember, uh, one school, school university I had went to and they had an on-campus church and the elders of the church would let the students know 
this is not your church. We put money mm-hmm. to build this church. This is our church. So, you know, if you're a student there and you're excluding, why would I want to be part of that? Yeah. You're already stating that I have no part here whatsoever. Yeah, you know? well, I know in one of my districts that I pastored, I ran into a similar problem. Now, what happened was when I had come to the church to pastor, they had a lot of university students coming there. Uh-huh. And so... Um, uh, at the time, I was pastoring two churches, and so I was confronted with the fact that they were saying that we have uh, people for coming from the university to this church, but they don't feel like they are part of the church, and uh, they feel that if they're not a part of it, you know, they don't feel too comfortable here. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, why don't we, uh, why don't we discuss the issue you know, I said, you know, since I passed the two churches and and uh, one of them is out of town, what we'll do, y'all just go ahead and have service here. But in the afternoon, when I come up to the, you know, from the back from the other church, we'll sit down and we'll discuss this issue. Uh-huh. And so after I finished uh, one church, I came back from out of town and I met with them. And some of the issues was that we have people coming from one of the top universities uh, that they are coming to the church and they don't feel like they are part of it. And I said, well, you know, what is the reason why? And cause I'm looking around and they are playing the piano and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. they were saying that they are selling us just because we don't have membership here. We cannot, uh, you know, participate in the way that we want to. Mm-hmm. I said that is one of the qualifications of a church is that it must have official members of the church who holds the office in this church. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, that, that's, that's, that's a given. I said, but if they want to be a part of the church and still have the right to vote and all of that, they, they must be members because uh, if you're not members, then it, 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 it'll produce uh, an even flow in the fact that if they have the voting rights, they can get a whole lot of people that are not members to vote. Yeah. They, other churches, they may not have as many uh, uh, members, and they are going by the blueprint that you got to be a member to vote, and you getting all these people to vote, and it, it, it may not work out. I said, but what we can do uh, is to make a program that if they don't want to change their membership, we're not going to force them to, that they can still work in this church. And what we did, we sat down and we made a blueprint where that even though they were not members, we call them what you call acting officers. Mm. They were acting, which means they could still fulfill the role, certain things they could do and certain things they couldn't. Okay. But they would have the full capacity to use the gifts that they had in the church, and they could be over a department acting, but they, the mailing address would have to be to the person who is over the department. You know, okay. And so we worked it out, and then... Uh, as we did that, uh, there were other problems that came up, but I think we, we were able to deal with that. And one of the things that came out of the discussion was that there are people, you know, how do we identify Adventists who are in the university? And they found out that usually when you enroll in a university, they are write down the type of religion that you have and you have access to that profile to go and see how many people are 
you know, have enlisted under the, not everybody probably didn't, didn't, didn't do that. Uh-huh. But for the people who know what church they want to go to, they could just go to the church without doing that. But at least the people who wanted to come to the church, they could uh, go to the listener and say, hey, you know, these are a lot of Adventists or these are a lot of Baptists or these are a lot of Presbyterians. And so when we see all of these names under a given category, then what we can do is look these people up and say, hey, you know, we got a church over here and are you willing to come over to this church? Uh-huh. And so that was a way of not only uh, incorporating their talent, but also a recruiting and uh, evangelistic way of if people, they may have uh, dropped out of church once they went to university, but this is a way to revive them. So we, we discussed a number of angles that we could uh, deal with that, but they did have an active part in the church, even though they was, you know, in a university. Wow. Yeah, you know, I think when it comes to the ministry, you have to include everybody because it's not a thing of, to me, segregation. Y'all wants us all included from the babies to the old eldest. You know, everyone should be included in in the study and go to scripture. And I think, you know, that's one of the mistakes. I, I mean, one of the things I don't really see religions do besides just it's more like a programming the kids when they in Bible school. And it's not like they t- try to implement a learning and studying of the word at a, at a, as, as a youngster. It's more of, okay, here's these Bible stories, learn these. And the Bible stories they give you, to me, basically influence the ideologies of that religion. Not really about studying the scripture for the truth in the word, but more of adhering to the rules and regulations of the particular religion. Yeah, well, that's perceived by a lot of people that, you know, they, uh, they're they stuck on uh, the rules and the regulation and the policies of the church rather than they are uh, dealing with the uh, relationship that one has, you know, with his Savior and also with the congregation. Now, uh, one of the things that you notice is that when you uh, look at the church from the standpoint of the denomination is, is that when you, when you see the church being fragmented to your Uh church, doesn't need to be fragmented because people, you know, just break away from church, but it can be fragmented in the sense that instead of say, if you are Methodist and this person a Baptist, and then you have uh, Presbyterians and AME, Methodist, and all of that. Uh-huh. Well, in each denomination, um, you could be fragmented in the sense that if you got more of this, more than one of the same church in the area, it may be that those churches could come together, but they fragmented in the sense that if you got, even though you have the same denomination, uh-huh. you might say, well, I don't want to get with another pr- uh, a church of my same denomination because I want to stand out. And if I get with them, I may not stand out as, as much. You may look at a church over here. They may be struggling uh, with something and you may not be struggling with that. Mm-hmm. And then you may have 12 or maybe 15 churches in the area. Now, wouldn't it be feasible that if you had all of those churches in the area, why, why not all 15 churches get together and say, well, 
we're going to make an impact on the city by having a certain ministry that we all 15 churches can be involved in because if we get involved in it, then this would mean that not one, but all of the, the entire denomination would get to credit for it. But usually I think each church is indigenous. You know, it, yeah. it does its own program. It does its own thing. Because when you look at most churches, they have their own calendar. You know, yeah. now some may have a few things on the calendar that they do together, but for the most part, uh, everybody got their own individual calendar. And so with that in, that in place, then you saying, I'm going off to do my own thing. But wouldn't it be better to say that we can do some things together that will not only help in evangelism, mm-hmm. but it would help us to be more co- cohesive and to be together, and we can develop programs that can be able to benefit you know, like you said, from the cradle roll all up to adulthood, if we all can get together to do this, because sometimes one one big church may not be able to accommodate all of the talents of the people. True. But just think about if you put all 15 of the churches and all the congregation together, they ought to be able to come up with something that each person can be benefited by what they plan. True. So true. Well, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer as we get ready to wrap up this podcast for this week. Okay. Beloved Father, we thank you for having dialogue about your word and some of the things that are taking place just before the Catholic coming of Yeshua the Messiah and things are wrapping up. And as we discuss these things, Lord, we can be able to see it in such a way that we can start doing things that would be more advantageous, Lord, for all age groups that as they come together, that they can find themselves not only listening to the word, but being able to put out the word themselves in programs and meaningful expressions in such a way that they'll find fulfillment and helping others to find fulfillment. And as we continue to study about the seed, O oh Heavenly Father, we may understand what it is that you would have us to be able to see and to do. And as we recognize Yeshua being the son and being your son, that we can have a relationship with him. And the relationship that we're trying to have is a living connection through the power of your Holy Spirit, not just a religious con- connection, but a personal relationship that we can have with him. Because when you come, you're looking for those in whom you can say that they, these are your children. Because many times, oh, Heavenly Father, people are doing a lot of things, but they have no relation. And those are the ones that you would say, when you come, I never knew you. And many people say, well, I did this, and I did that in your name. And he said, but I never knew you. Why did he say that? Because they were so busy doing the work that they were not building a relationship with you. And they thought that doing all of the work and not having the relationship was the right thing. But help us to develop that personal relationship with the son of Elohim, that when he does come, it is not so much that we did all of the work, but we did the relationship that produced the work rather than trying to do the work to produce the relationship. So bless us, bless each listener, and as we get ready to go into a new week, we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit may refresh us on the Shabbat, that we may have the recreation or the recreation of our bodies and our souls and our minds, that we will be better prepared to enter into another week. We thank you for the week that you have given us. Look forward to the week ahead, and if it be your will to spare our lives, may we do the things that you have assigned our hands to do, and when you do come, we can meet you in peace, is our prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen.
Amen. We encourage you every week to tune into our podcast at 1 p.m. on Saturdays. And we will be celebrating soon. They're coming up fast. The fall feast days, you want to be on the lookout for those because we will be having uh, services to celebrate the fall feast that's coming up uh, probably in about a month or so. And we will have those dates to you soon as we uh, get them. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. Know therefore that Yahuwah Eloheka, he is Elohim, the faithful El, which guards his covenant and mercy with them that love him and guard his commandments to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalom. <laughs>